Hey folks, and welcome back to this week's podcast. Marshall Crenshaw, fourth time he has been a guest on this program. Interesting guy, interesting career. Uh, he's somebody who, as I say in this this episode, I bought his debut album when it came out. It was one of those records came out sort of at the end of my high school uh, senior year, and by the time I was a freshman in college, everybody had that record. It was just one of those sort of touchstone records that people my age all bought because it was something new, but reverent of all these cool old things and just a great combination of stuff. Interestingly enough, I ended up, I think in 2001, maybe going to Japan and opening a little tour for Marshall Crenshaw, both of us doing our sets solo acoustic and often we were the only English speakers around so we talked to each other quite a bit that week and got to know him and he's just a super interesting guy super super knowledgeable about music and um, just a lifer you know a music lifer so uh, it's the 40th anniversary of his debut album and so uh, we really just stick to that topic in this interview so if you want more uh, about the rest of his biography check out our other interviews that are available wfmu.org slash michael ron sexsmith is coming up with a live performance next week on the show so tune in to that and uh, here it is me and marshall crenshaw marshall crenshaw i believe you're on the phone good morning how are you i'm just fine how are you michael I'm doing great. I got this new reissue, 40th anniversary reissue of your first record, and I've been driving around all week listening to it, and it really kind of blew my mind. I mean, I bought the vinyl when it came out. I still have it, but just to listen to the whole record all the way through a bunch of times, it's really a huge piece of work. And I'm so first question, do you feel how important this record is to people? Is that something that is demonstrated to you? Do people, you know, for 40 years that they've been coming up to you and just telling you that your music and this record are important to them. That has happened, yes. That's been made clear to me <laughs> over the years. Yeah, I know people really love the record a lot, so how about that? Yeah, it's nice. I mean, and it's 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 a really important record. Okay, so this record was recorded at the record plant. I'm curious, sometimes in a place like that, you know, Kiss or Paul McCartney or somebody else was recording in Studio B or whatever. Was there anything else going on in that building when this was recorded? You know, nothing comes to mind. There was a Studio B right next door to Studio A where I was, but I kind of wish that we were in B looking back because it was more of a live room than Studio A, we were, you know, like we were in the legendary Studio A, but, you know, I remember there was a lot of, not carpeting, but, you know, just like insulation on the walls, whereas B was like a nice wood, all hard surfaces, API desk. Anyway, that's, uh, that's, I'm rambling now, but no, I don't remember anything about who else was in the studio while we were there. The producer credit on the record is produced by you and Richard Goddard. Of course, Richard Goddard goes way back to the 60s, The Strange Loves. His name is on a lot of hit records. So tell me about the division of labor and how you worked that out. I'm going to say it was a long time ago. Division of labor. Well, you know, he was uh, kind of like, he, he was really in charge, you know, and, and set the pace of the recording project. And it would be his decision when we would stop everything and order food and, <laughs> and how long we would sit around and uh, tell stories 
when the whole thing started, I was the producer. I kind of scammed my way into the producer's chair, you might say, and then kind of couldn't really pull it off by myself. So I needed the help of a, a wiser person. And that was his role. And he fulfilled that role. And the reason I reached out to him when I got in trouble is because I'd already worked with him and I knew him because of Robert Gordon. I'd worked with Richard and Robert Gordon at the same place at at the record plant with the same engineer. So when I got my own record deal, I reached out to the engineer at the record plant. And then when I got in trouble with the whole thing, I reached out to Richard. Again, these are just people that I knew already and had worked with. So. Gotcha. That makes perfect sense. So how far along had you got before you pulled Richard in? Uh, we were in there for maybe three weeks. had recorded four tracks, I think. And the one that survived from my time as producer was the was Cynical Girl. Only change Richard devised on that was to get rid of a keyboard bass part that I had on it. He said, no, that's no good. Put a Fender bass on it and you'll be all set. Other than that, that, you know, that's that's a thing that I did myself before he came along. So there must be other versions of a couple of the songs on the album in the Warner's vaults, versions that we did before Richard came in, but I don't remember what they were anymore. And uh, they haven't, I don't think anybody's found those. That's fascinating. So am I right that it's you playing all the instruments on Cynical Girl? Yeah, it is. My brother helped me with the hand claps. <laughs> so other than that, I did it by myself. Got a interesting guy because he straddled so many errors and he sort of, you know, with the Go-Go's Blondie, Robert Gordon, he was kind of on a roll with kind of some of the newer music, especially in New York. Did he have a lot of good ideas? Sure, yeah, you know, I, 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 he was a, he's a real musical guy and uh, really good rock and roller. and So, yeah, I would say so. But the other thing was, he, you know, like kind of stayed out of my way too, you know. It was just like a good back and forth. Hmm. Uh, I just saw him about a month ago at a Robert Gordon memorial show at, at Bowery Electric. It seemed to me like he'd hardly changed at all since I saw him back in the day, you know. And we had a nice conversation. He's like, you know, one of the two or three people that straddled all those different eras and uh, quite a remarkable career. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk about a little bit about the writing of these songs. You were in Beatlemania, and from what I understand, you wrote a lot of these songs in a short period of time. Like you'd been in cover bands in Detroit, and you'd been playing John Lennon, and you were sitting in a hotel room writing these songs. Uh, So what coalesced that, you know, was it some maturity in you or some new confluence of influences? But, you know, what happened to to make all these songs pop out of you? Let me see. You know, like a like a two or three year period leading up to writing all these songs where I decided to leave the Detroit area where I grew up. I decided I need to make some kind of move and take some kind of big pragmatic step in my life because my life was floundering. And I was uh, maybe 24 or five when this, you know, dawned on me. I went out to the West Coast with this friend of mine from high school he was already kind of established there, sort of. That didn't work out, so I wound up in a touring band, like a lounge band, a country band that played, like, you know, country top 40 stuff. Did that for a few months. I knew enough James Burton licks to get by with that. And that was very interesting. 
I've never been west of the Mississippi before, you know, but all of a sudden I'm just traveling around all these small towns in the west in a different world on a different planet almost, but just like, you know, soaking up all these impressions and whatever, you know, and I'm by myself and I'm kind of gathering my thoughts. And then after that, I wound up getting in Beatlemania. It's just it's like this funny ride that I went on, you know, for about two, three years where I'm just in all these places. Once I got in Beatlemania, I'm in New York, and then I'm in L.A., and then I'm in a touring company going to all the major cities in America. This is the late 70s when it's not a great time for American cities, but I'm like in all of them within a short period of time. It's just this whirlwind kind of, you know, of new experiences. And again, you know, I'm conscious of the fact that time is passing and I need to do something with my life. And uh, I always knew that that would revolve around popular music and rock and roll. And now suddenly things just sort of coalesced in my mind. It was also had to do with being in Beatlemania, being around guys my own age. Some of them were ambitious and starting to get focused in their own ways. And I saw that and I thought, yeah, okay, it's time, you know. And it just, I don't know, it all just kind of came together in my head, like an artistic vision coalesced in my head, you might say, and I just was re- all of a sudden I was ready to do something, and I knew exactly how I wanted it to feel, and etc. So that was the album. The other thing I want to say was, of course, being in New York was a huge, huge part of it. I just really was in love with the whole moment in the culture, you know, that was going on around me right then. And it, it, that really was, you know, I mean, people recognize it now as as, as this real kind of moment in New York, you know, like the late 70s into the early 80s. So I was just really on fire about that whole thing because of that whole deal. And uh, it's like somebody once said, you know, you get your whole life to do your first album. I guess all of a sudden it just was like summation time or something, you know. Yeah, I definitely think you can hear all your history in the songs and in the way the record was produced, because it's very much a contemporary 1982 record, but it also has this reverence to all this other good stuff that sort of came before it. And I think people really connected with that combination, that recipe of stuff. You mentioned these Robert Gordon cuts. He had cut Wasting My Time and Someday Some Way and Something's Gonna Happen. Uh, I remember hearing those on WNEW a lot in New York City. Were those real, I assume those are super important to sort of getting you started. The first thing I worked on with him was was an album that never came out. Or it didn't come out at first because he wanted to part ways with Richard Goddard. So they finished the album, but then Robert fired Richard. But then did another album, did that one at the power station. And that was the one that had Someday, Someway on it. And as soon as that one came out, Meg Griffin really jumped on Someday, Someway. She'd always been a Robert Gordon fan. And she just grabbed that cut, put it on the radio. and So that was a hit in New York, Robert's version of Someday, Someway. And right about the same time that came out, I'd done my own single with Alan Betrock. And Alan was really savvy. He hired a promo guy to work the record. I'll say his name. His name's Steve Leeds. He's still around. So Steve got my single onto WNEW. I guess he played that for Meg Griffin, and she went, oh, great, sure. You know, so they're playing both of these songs of mine on NEW. That was a really big deal. So it was just like a confluence of, 
of that, plus the fact that we were playing in the clubs and people really loved us and the press loved us and everything was just was like a perfect storm kind of thing for us, you know. The idea of taking your songs and because the earlier Robert Gordon records had been a little more straight up rockabilly and to sort of put these obviously poppy songs, but in this rootsy way is, is again, it's sort of a new thing just born. And it was, again, perfect thing, right thing for the, the, the right time. So let's get back to the record. How long to make the whole LP? So it was three weeks before Richard even got on board. How long to finish it up? I went pretty fast once he came in because he knew exactly what he was doing and was really a record producer. And, uh, you know, so I'm going to say it was like four more weeks after that. Oh, yeah, that's fast. Yeah, it was fast. I mean, you know, mixed it in a week, I guess. You know, we didn't waste any time. And was was there pressure from Warner Brothers? Were they expecting something or did they were they open minded? Were they dropping around the studio and giving their two cents? Uh, let me see. When you say Warner Brothers, you know, there's like it's it's really a West Coast based label. It was I was an East Coast signing. No, I don't, you know, one thing I I can say about the thing with, with them was that they insisted that I do someday some way, which which I thought, well, why should I do it? Robert Gordon just did it. Everybody knows Robert's version. Why should I? You know, but I was completely wrong about that you know i was just thinking with this very kind of new york centric viewpoint because not everybody did know it only people in new york knew it you know like it wasn't really a national hit it was really just kind of a regional local hit for him but warners insisted that i do it you know thank god that they did but it wasn't like i had any choice it was like well that you're you know do it okay so good for them. And then also there was a thing with the song Brand New Lover. We cut it and then they said, it's too slow. Do it again at a faster tempo. So those are the two things I remember as far as notes, getting notes from them. Gotcha. And the uh, the, slight, the slower, the original version of Brand New Lover is one of the seven bonus tracks on the CD. Let's remind folks that Marshall Crenshaw is our guest. And I also want to tell folks that if you go to WFMU.org slash Michael, there's a 2007 chat with me and Marshall, a 2011 chat with me and Marshall, and a 2012 chat with me and Marshall, and a 2019 chat with Robert, your brother who wrote a real interesting book, which, like you were talking about earlier, he really goes into detail about those early days in New York and how you guys exist. Existed in those kind of lean times. It's real interesting stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, he has a really sharp memory. You know, I should listen to that interview, <laughs> or, uh, or maybe you should, maybe you should just play that one instead of the one that I'm doing right now. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> the archives are there for attorney. So the new record is out on the Yep Rock label, and I know that I noticed that it was remastered by Greg Calby, who I believe mastered the original one. So I think that's something folks don't really know exactly what that means. What is remastered? Mastering, what happens in the process, and uh, what does it do to the the record? Well, that's a good point, because when we went to the session to master it the first time, I didn't know what mastering was. We get there, you know, and I'm looking at the components in Greg's rack, you know, and I can see that it's all solid-state stuff and kind of 70s gear, bingy-boingy kind of solid-state sound, 70s sound. Now he has a lot of tube stuff in his rack. He has a completely different, you know, outlook on. Anyway, um, mastering, right? Uh, Well, I I was kind of taken aback by it, you know, because we had done our mixes, but, like, 
I noticed a little that he was that they were like dumping low end from the sound that we'd gotten on tape, and I and I thought, well, what's he doing? I asked somebody what he was doing, and they said, well, you know, we we don't want the record to skip, and we want the mid range to pop out when it gets played on the radio. So uh, I was just kind of standing there, you know, it was a learning kind of moment because I didn't know anything about any of that. But this time around, we just took sort of a fresh approach to it, you know, and uh, some of the concerns from back then were not things that we had to think about this time around. So we just sort of treated the sound of the mixes a little differently. In other words, we left the, you know, we left more of the bottom of it in, which I think is a real benefit to the record, you know. For one thing, my vocal really has some more support from the band, which helps a lot. You know, the way my voice was back then, I, I think it really benefits from the support from the band that it has on this new mastering job. Were you guys working from tapes, or what, what was the source for the new remaster? Let me just say that we got something that we could master from <laughs> that was acceptable. How do I put this? What What's happened, the reason that this stuff is out now the way that it's out now and that it's out on Yep Rock and, you know, the whole 40th anniversary thing is is because I was able to claim the copyrights to the sound recordings. God bless U.S. copyright law, because after a certain period of time, if you file your paperwork in a timely manner and do all that kind of stuff, then the author of a work can, can claim the copyright to that work after a certain period of time. So I did that with my Warner Brothers sound recordings. And uh, that's it. You know, I just, I wanted, I had the control and uh, the ability to just say, well, I want there to be a nice version of this album out for people that love it. And uh, we just kind of went from there. But this was all, you know, it's like now I'm operating independently from from Warner Music because they don't like it when people do what I did. But, you know, it was my legal right to do it. And, uh, Gotcha, but it doesn't mean they're going to open up the vaults to you and say, come on in and help yourself. Uh... No, but so we had to find all these different workarounds, but, I, you know, it was like such a, like, yeah, you know, it was inspiring to be challenged that way. I'm still friendly with the photographers that took all the, all the photographs back in the day, so I was able to have access to all of their materials and uh you know, I had an art director working with me who really loves the album and is really super talented himself. David Gorman is his name. He, I don't know if you're familiar with the Rhino reissues of, of my stuff that came out in the early 2000s, and they did a nice compilation thing, two-CD set. David was really instrumental with all that stuff. So this whole thing has just been mostly, it's me and David Gorman and, and then the people at Yap Rock like quite, you know, it's really emotional, honestly, to revisit all this stuff and just really try to create this package that honors it, you know, honors that moment in my life. It was, you know, really cool. That's one of the things I did during lockdown was work on this. And then there's a 40th anniversary of Field Day, a 40th anniversary issue of Field Day coming out later this year. Great. Yeah, this yeah. one has a big uh, glossy booklet in it. And like I said, it's got the seven uh, bonus tracks for folks. So I was wondering what else was going on. And I looked up what the top 
10 records were the week this was released 40 years ago. And it's a very interesting uh, list. It's I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett was number one. We Got the Beat was number two by the Go-Go's. And then Chariots of Fire by Vangelis. Freeze Frame by the Jay Giles Band. Uh, Rick Fring, Springfield uh-huh. Song. Ebony and Ivory, a Huey Lewis song. So there are some uh, some songs I never heard of. Birdie Haggis, Key Largo. <laughs> I, but so there's some like kind of new music in that list and some like older, you know, sounding music. Were you what were your expectations and and how did you deal with being, you know, the reviews of this record were so good. I went back and was looking at some of them. I mean, just how did you deal with the whole being put into the star machine? Oh, wow. Well, um, let me see. Well, I, I, of course, wanted the records to be hits, you know. We had one sort of hit single from it. Uh, you know, I was hoping for six, seven, eight, maybe. But uh, anyway, you know, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it, that's an interesting question, you know. It was kind of a mind-blowing question, actually. There was, a, honestly, looking back, there was a, I'd say that there was a part of me that didn't want to take the business side of things seriously. So I, I kind of didn't, you know, I, I, it's like it was a buzzkill for me back then if somebody wanted to talk to me about the business aspect of the whole thing. And, you know, I, so I, I, I made a lot of like haphazard business choices. So that caught up with me pretty fast. And uh, I was just having to deal with a lot of things that I had very little understanding of, even though I kind of thought I did. But uh there was a book that came out maybe 10, 15 years ago called Hitman. Yeah. I don't know if, if you've ever heard of that, but, you know, like my dad read that book after it came out. And uh, later on, I, I kind of scanned it. I, I actually was uh, spending the weekend with this friend of mine and the person that he was staying with had a, had a copy of the book. And with uh, like sand in between the pages for, from the from the beach at the Hamptons, you know, and I, I don't want to say whose copy it was, but it was the the copy of the book that I was looking at was owned by somebody who was in the book a lot. But anyway, you can kind of read about the record business climate from that moment in time. And uh, I was just sort of in the middle of all this stuff going on. And it was like, again, it was this other world to me that I was only kind of semi-interested in. But anyway, it's like my sister-in-law is a dog trainer, and uh, she says that it's your duty as a dog owner to set your dog up for success. I, did, I kind of fell short that way. I didn't really set myself up for success, you might say, huh. in, the, in the business. And the other thing is it's a very fast-paced business full of uh, super ambitious people and focused people. And, uh, I don't know how, if I was really any of those things, honestly. I just I, th- I think the part that I got right was the artistic part, and then the business part of it. Obviously, I was kind of <laughs> you know a little clueless about all that. But that's super interesting. I mean, but yet you've had a forty-year career that's had some real interesting turns, and you know, lots of great records. Are you still? Uh, mm-hmm. Is there is there a new Marshall Crenshaw record in the works? You know, honestly, but like you said, I've you know I've. I'm still walking the earth and I've done a lot of stuff and no, I I wouldn't really change anything, but I'm just, you know, you kind of alluded to the high commercial expectations for the record that didn't quite get met 
and you know, that's just there's a behind the scenes, below the surface story of the record that's way too long to go into. I could write a book, but I never will. I know I'll never write a book, but you know, I feel like at this point I do remember everything that happened. And I think I know everything that happened, and I think I understand everything that happened. But uh, it's like impossible, you know, for me to capture it all in a couple of minutes. It okay. just can't be. It can't be done. <laughs> but anyway, it was. It was. I mean, it was just amazing. It really was this this amazing whirlwind that I stepped into. And uh, I loved. I love thinking back on that time period. My favorite part to think back on, though, is, is before we made the record, when we were just coming up in the in the clubs in New York, and we're like a local New York band. That was like an unbelievable, you know, blast. That part of it, and just to be in that in that world was really something. Yeah, I wish I had been at one of those pre uh, Warner Brothers gigs. I can only imagine. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess with forty years, you have the perspective of like your own experience to 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 weigh what happened to you against. And I'm glad to hear you say you wouldn't sort of do it differently again. But it does sound like, I mean, I think one thing to, to keep in mind is that this record really sold a huge, by today's standard, a huge, 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 huge amount of, of sales for this record. I mean, you know, it didn't sell as many as Rick Springfield, but, you know, it, it still was a huge success. I mean, is that how, I'm hoping that's how you see it. It's had longevity. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, like it still sells, you know, over the, over the years, it's, it's never stopped generating revenue or and field day too, you know, it's like those two really have had like this long, you know, kind of currency a little bit. They're, I would say they're, that they're classic albums. That's the position I'm taking with this stuff is that these are classic albums and 40th anniversary folks, you know, that's, I think that that's, justified yeah i agree they're totally classic albums uh but you know we're talking about the 40th anniversary of your first album but your whole catalog has gems in it and folks should not stop at the first two records there's just great stuff and growth as an artist and as a songwriter and folks should should check out the whole catalog of course yeah i do think this one endures and partly because it was just the right thing at the right time sort of what we said earlier it was just this coalescence of ideas and music that had come before and personality and energy and you know just everything is is kind of amazing so you know we talk about you as a songwriter and you as a performer and a singer and we sort of sometimes shortchange you as a guitar player because you were a remarkable guitar player and i think once we were talking about how you got that way and you kind of looked at me like I was crazy. You were like, oh, I just worked really, really, really hard on it. So what guitar players do you love? And what, what's your own, how do you, what's your own report card on yourself as a guitar player? Uh, you know, I'm trying. Like, I'm still trying to get it in tune and all that stuff. But no, I, I, I play, I actually play every day. And uh, just different things. You know, I have these exercises that I do to try to keep my fingers strong if you don't use it, you can lose it, especially at my age. And then I have like, I have some books I look at. I got this one called Chord Chemistry. And, uh, what's the other one? Oh, the Kreitzer Exercises for Guitar. I fooled around with those a little bit. You know, I, I just, 
I, I love to play guitar, and I, I figure I'll do that for the rest of my life. Like, I, I won't, you know, I'll probably be able to play the guitar until I'm out of here, I hope, you know. As long as I don't get any curveballs thrown at me, like uh, any kind of debilitating health issues. You know, boy, I'm starting to talk like an old person <laughs> all, the t- all the time and think like one, too. But that, I guess there's nothing I can do about that. Well, you're real busy. I mean, you're busy. You're real busy working uh, your own thing and also uh, singing sometimes with the Smithereens. I know you've got a bunch of shows coming up in a busy March in Pennsylvania and Virginia and Kansas City and Connecticut and uh, up at Daryl's house in Pauling and Staten Island. Uh, yeah. And, I, and yeah, that's busy. How's that been? I mean, that what a weird turn of events that is. And it seems to be working out. It's really fun, you know. And like you say, I am really busy. Like, I'm busy a lot, all the time. I was even busy during lockdown, partly with these reissued projects, and but lots of other stuff, too. Let me see. Last week on Thursday, I did a recording session for a friend of mine, and it was really fun. It was a thing for the last ever episode of this TV show called The Amazing Mrs. Mizell. A friend of mine is, like, the music producer on the show, so he asked me to come and play, and uh, we did that. You know, the Dave Edmonds song, Girls Talk? Oh, yeah. We we did a, a track for that, and uh, I guess Tegan and Sarah are going to sing it. But I was just a, like a session guy that day, you know, with some other session guys like Sean Pelton was there, David Mansfield. And then the next day I had a smithereen show at Stony Hall. That's a lot of activity for at my age right there. Just oh, The recording session was at the power station. So I was like so happy to be in that space again i hadn't really been there at all since since i did field day but it's still there you know i've got shows of my own coming up i've got 40th anniversary shows coming up in july and september and in the fall Uh, i had a band last year with mark ortman on drums and fernando perdomo on guitar and Derek anderson on bass i'll have that same band this year we're going to be on the east coast during september I've also got this film project that I've talked about a lot, and I don't want to talk about it now, but, you know, that's a real kind of all-consuming thing. It has been for many years. It's hard to make a documentary, folks. It takes way longer than I thought it did. But anyhow, I'm working on that. Uh, Just stuff, a lot of stuff, you know. Plus my life, too, you know, just my family life. And Anyway, yeah, I wouldn't... uh, I wouldn't change anything or redo anything, and I certainly never complain. I'm glad you feel. Uh, yeah, you, yeah. It's so it's so tough. It's just it, it's tough because uh, you got you got so many great opportunities and and got to exist in such a great time. Uh, and here you are, 40 years later, still doing it. Uh, yeah, good. No complaints. I'm glad that's that's where you're at. Uh huh. I would say that. Yeah. Uh, so folks can go see you with Smithereens. They can see this tour coming up for the 40th anniversary. I'm sure that's going to be huge. And uh, Yep Rock is the place to uh, look for this new reissue with the glossy, big, huge booklet and the seven uh, bonus tracks. There's some live stuff. There's some uh, home recordings. There's some alternate versions. A real nice compliment to the to the original songs, which are just flawlessly good. Thank you, Marshall, for coming back. And you're always welcome here. Thank you, Michael. It's always nice to talk to you. Always nice to see you. And uh, I'm glad you're well. So, uh, yeah. Have a good day, okay?